grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So when I began studying this morning's gospel text, I did just about what you'd expect from a rookie. I thought to myself, ooh, a demon story. That ought to be fun. My mind took a little trip back to the 70s and the early 80s to films like The Exorcist, Poltergeist, uh, the Amityville Horror. That was a trap. The story, and it's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, uh, isn't really about the demons so much as it is about Jesus. Go figure. But before I came to my senses, I did find out some interesting tidbits that are just too good not to share. The Amityville house on Long Island has been sold and resold a few times since the mass murder that really did take place uh, there in 1974. And often for less money than the asking price, but there have been no reported sightings of demons or um, black slime oozing out of the walls or disembodied voices warning, get out. Somewhere along the line, a new owner has even removed the windows high up on the one side of the house that looked for all the world like it was watching you. And the address has been changed. And a wrought iron fence has been erected around the front yard. There's a sign by the curb that reads, no stopping at any time. And if you try to find it on Google Maps Street View, the house, just that house, is completely blurred out. Now, privacy concerns? Or maybe it's something supernatural, and it really looks like that in person, blurry, fading in and out, in and out. Or uh, I'm going to go with uh, such is the price of fame. And as for fortune, since the publication of Jay Anson's written account in 1977 and the film that followed in 1979, one serious remake and 23 more sequels prequels, spin-offs, and documentaries have been made, with four more still in development, uh, most with the, the barest of connections to the original story. That list uh, includes probably one of your favorites, the 2016 non-hit uh, Amityville Toy Box, a film about a haunted monkey that once lived in the house. <laughs> that's, that's a reach. Uh, we've got a real-life story about a haunted house in our gospel lesson this morning, a human house filled to the rafters with real-life evil spirits. So let's take a closer look at this story about, well, Jesus. <laughs> it had been a long night. Uh, yesterday, the Lord announced to his disciples that he wanted to sail over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Then he just laid down in the boat and fell asleep to the sounds and smells of the large inland lake. Now, the west side, the region of Galilee, was where they had done most of their ministry. You know, it had a densely Jewish population. But the other side, not so much. And that's today's gospel. But even the boat trip over is worthy of mentioning. A sudden storm came up. A squall, it's sometimes translated. And that's not really unusual there, but they're still very dangerous even for a boatload of professional fishermen. In fact, the boat was being swamped. Uh, everything they saw spelled hopelessness until they remembered who was in the boat with them. And as a last resort, of course, the last resort, right? They'd already done everything they could think of, not to sink. Um, they do the one thing they should have been the first thing, really. They go to Jesus and they wake him up, certain that they're all headed to the bottom. And Jesus gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves with just a word. And at his command, the storms subside. Where is your faith, he asks them, obviously disappointed. 
They were still discovering that you really couldn't put limits on the Lord who had created the sea in the first place. That nothing is impossible with God. They'd seen some miraculous things, but nothing that could compare with this. And the Lord's about to kick it up another notch. So they finished their voyage and they put the shore in the region of Gerasenes, opposite Galilee. It was an area where more Gentiles than Jews lived. How do we know that? Because herds of pigs were being tended. Pork was somewhere right around at the top of that thou shalt not eat list of Jewish dietary laws. They're definitely not in Galilee anymore. This is heathen territory, away from the synagogues of the Jews, away from the people of Israel and the land. The first man they meet there is in pretty bad shape. He's the star of his own horror story. Wild looking, no clothes, the remnants of shackles still hanging from his wrists. He's been living in the tombs or maybe caves for shelter. He's possessed by demons, described sometimes in a heading in some Bibles as a demoniac, which sounds a little like maniac, and that's really how they made him act. The people of his own town actually kept him chained up and under guard because this man was so dangerous. Uh, whenever he was seized by the demons, though, he was given uh, superhuman strength to break his chains and, and escape to less habited places. Because he's under the control of evil spirits, they recognize Jesus, even though the man has never met him before. When Jesus calmed the storm at sea just hours earlier, the disciples uh, had asked each other, who is this? You know, even the wind and the waves obey him. The demons controlling this man answer the question for them. Jesus is the son of the most high God. They know that and they fear him. They know they deserve damnation eternal torture in the abyss of hell mentioned in Revelation. But during the time of the church, they've been allowed to roam the earth. Peter warns us. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. So, should you be worried about demonic possession? Well, probably not if you're a believer unless you're literally invited into your life, and that can happen when you stand too close to the fire, so to speak. You know, dabbling in the occult, for example, can open the door to a world that you really don't want any part of. Most likely, though, your troubles will be caused by demonic influence rather than all-out possession. On the dark side, urging you to choose wrong over right by attacking your weakest point, your sinful nature. But this poor man, his life was no longer under his control. And when Jesus asked his name, the demon replies, Legion. Well, that's creepy, because in the time of Caesar Augustus, a Roman legion numbered about 6,000 soldiers. Now, probably not an exact count in regards to the number of demons that had found a home in this man, but in a general sense, it was referring to the great number of demons who did reside within him. This whole legion of demons begged Jesus not to order them back to hell. Instead, they offer a compromise. They ask his permission to enter a, a herd of pigs that are grazing on a nearby hillside. The big herd. Mark tells us there were about 2,000 pigs. Jesus gives them permission, which in turn causes the whole herd to stampede right down the steep bank into the abyss of the lake and drown. It's a foreshadowing of the lake of fire Satan and his followers will ultimately be cast into on the last day. On this day, water becomes the final resting place of the demonized pigs. Jesus is demonstrating his power over Satan, even on Satan's own turf. This is pagan territory. Like the disciples in the storm as their boat was being swamped, there was really nothing this man could do to save himself. 
Only Jesus could rescue him. It's a picture of our own spiritual condition by nature, our tendency to wander toward evil instead of turning toward God. And still Jesus came to his rescue by, by his own obedience and his death and resurrection. While we were still sinners, Paul says, Christ died for us. <clears throat> Unless you somehow think that Jesus is being cruel to animals, he wasn't the one who suggested the demons enter the pigs when they vacated that poor man at all. So what happens to Jesus, what matters to Jesus is the uh, salvation of lost sinners. And it's sad about the pigs, I guess, if at least the villagers sure thought so. Um, when they heard the report of what happened, they came out to the cemetery to see for themselves. And what they found was the for formerly possessed man dressed again in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. What did they do? Praise God? No. Now, they didn't really care about the restoration of their neighbor as much as they did about their pigs. They asked Jesus to leave. Why would they do that? <clears throat> what were they thinking? When the disciples saw Jesus still the storm, they marveled at his power, even over nature. Now, you would think that enough people in the crowd that day would have seen the potential for good that kind of power could accomplish and begged Jesus to stay. <clears throat> Luke and Mark both say that it was because they were afraid. <clears throat> the twice. They were overcome with fear, he says. Now, is that a surprising reaction? Well, maybe not. In another miracle story, when Jesus raised a widow's son from death and the dead man sat up and began to speak, Luke tells us that fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, God has visited his people. When Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed, Luke says the people were filled with awe. It's the same Greek word translated afraid in our lesson this morning. It's that sense of wonder and reverence that sinful people are overcome with when they find themselves in the presence of our holy God. Same emotion this morning, but a different response. Instead of praising Jesus and glorifying God in their shock and awe moment, they ask him to leave. Maybe we're missing a detail. These were mostly Gentile people. They were non-Jews, and they worshipped pagan gods, if they worshipped any at all. But we all have one thing in common. When sin is confronted with holiness, sin cowers. And although it would be unlikely, we can't discount the idea that maybe the pig farmers were actually backsliding Jews from the other side of the lake. The formerly possessed man in our story wasn't driven away from Jesus by his fear. He was drawn to him. He saw through his fear to his Savior. He begged Jesus to take him with him. Now, we don't know his history. We don't know the background. We're not told how he'd come to be in this terrible situation, but it didn't matter. You know, that was all behind him now. He'd been rescued and restored, and now he wanted to follow Jesus, who by this time was probably climbing back into the boat. He wanted to be a follower, but Jesus had other work in mind for him. This man had a story to tell, a wonderful story of salvation. Now here's a, a converted pagan who's told by Jesus to return to his home, to tell everyone what God had done for him. This man may have been, actually been the first missionary to the Gentiles. It's an amazing story. But do you see your story in it? Put yourself, put yourself there in the story. Okay, you've just survived a near drowning by the power of Jesus. It would have surely dawned on you that even those things that, that seem to send your life spiraling out of control aren't really out of control for the one who stilled the storm. And then as soon as you step out of the boat, 
thrilled to be back on solid ground again, even if it does look like you landed in a cemetery. Here comes a man running straight at you from one of the tombs. His hair is tangled, his eyes look wild, uh, he's dressed in the rags of rags, and he's screaming and yelling, and uh, while the remnants of chains hanging from him are, are rattling and, and clinking. He's clearly out of his mind. Dangerous. What's your first move? Run back to the boat, right? Who can blame you? What does Jesus do? He stands his ground. He faces this madman, not seeing danger, but recognizing an opportunity to help him. And he does. He cleansed him. He changed him. He gave him his life back with a story to tell that was powerful enough to change the lives of others. This man had been at war with himself, literally battling his demons. Sometimes I think we can be our own worst enemy, though. Okay, so let's, now let's bring it forward. <clears throat> One day there was a young father <clears throat> shopping in a crowded supermarket. Had his three-year-old son with him. The little boy was riding in the grocery cart, causing no end of problems, of course. Anytime this dad would stray from the center of the aisle, not the friendliest route to commandeer in a crowded market, the boy would just rake stuff off the shelves right onto the floor. At one point, he even climbed out of the cart and went running down the aisle, his father in hot pursuit. People in the store at that time could hear the father saying out loud over and over, just be patient, Tommy. It won't be much longer, Tommy. It'll be okay, Tommy. Be calm, Tommy. Hang in there, Tommy. Finally, a, a woman came up to the man and said, you know, I just want to compliment you. I've been watching you, and I want you to know that I admire the remarkable patience you have with Tommy. Oh, lady, the man said, you don't understand. His name is Michael. I'm Tommy. <laughs> the man had a problem to deal with, right? And where did he start? By recognizing that his first problem was himself and doing his best to deal with it. But what if his best efforts weren't enough? See, the point you have to remember is that we don't have to deal with our, our stuff alone. It can be too much. It can get out of control. Now, we tend to refer to all sorts of troubles in our lives as battling our demons, don't we? Uh, these days, anyway. They're not really demons, but maybe it helps us to put an ugly face on them, to recognize them as hurtful or hateful or maybe even evil. Things we allow into our lives that keep us from moving forward that send us running back to the safety of our boat rather than remembering Jesus is standing right beside us, ready to be fearless for us. What name do we give to our so-called demons, the things that trouble and torment us? How about abuse or discouragement, addiction, bulimia, occultism, pornography, prejudice, hostility, greed, suspicion, lust for power, temper, anxiety, pessimism, impatience, or self-abuse, which one keeps you awake at night? What continually robs you of the life you want, and how are you dealing with it? These things aren't actual demons sent from hell, um, but they are the result of a very real demonic influence working our lives through our very real uh, sinful natures. The weakness inherent to a fallen sinful people living in a fallen sinful world. These are the kind of things we try to battle in our own power and fail over and over again. The demonized man in our gospel lesson didn't have any power or control over his demons. They controlled him until Jesus came along. See, real demons know where the real power lies. We heard it in our lesson. So 
Why do we keep forgetting? Maybe because we'd rather deny them than deal with them. Jesus can help you too. All you have to do is ask. He already sees you struggling, and he's there to help. Let him in. He can control the storm at sea because he created the sea. He can help you with your demons, your shortfalls, your sinful nature issues, because he created you. Now, if that's new thinking for you, if the concept of letting go and letting him take control of your life, your house, seems like too much to ask, think for a moment what he's already done for you. He's already demonstrated his love for you by humbling himself to be born as one of us and then suffering and dying for us to take away our sins, to provide a way by faith to become acceptable to God in spite of our demons. That doesn't mean we won't have troubles. Uh, that doesn't mean we won't face trials. Those things have been part of our world ever since our first parents disobeyed God back in the garden. But we can face those trials and walk through those troubles with Jesus at our side. And the demons will see. And they'll tremble. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.